This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk, directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Kim Phillips-Fine discusses her new book, Fear City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics. Then PWVP of Business Development, Carl Pritzkat, recaps the Pub Tech Connect conference. But first, there's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. Well, we We've got a new number one on the hardcover fiction list. It's by David Baldacci. No surprise that he shot up to the top. And it is the third Amos Decker book. It's called The Fix. Mm. Uh, Decker is a man who can forget nothing. Um, this is, as I said, the third book that Baldacci's written about him. And uh, we don't have a review of it, but uh, the jacket copy says that it begins with Amos witnessing a murder. Uh, and his extraordinary powers of observation and deduction are still not enough to immediately understand why a man shoots a woman and then turns the gun on himself. Mm. And so that's, uh, that's at the heart of the story. And uh, then moving down the list, we also have a new number three by Stuart Woods is Fast and Loose. Uh, this is the 41st novel starring Stone Barrington. Um, it's really an extraordinary feat, this, uh, this ongoing series. And uh, in this one, Stone Barrington survives a number of close calls, starting with a collision between his yacht and another larger boat. And uh, we say this, the book is very enjoyable. Um, fans of Barrington, who's a New York City attorney, will definitely love this installment mm-hmm. and uh, that there's an exciting showdown at the end at a Virginia farmhouse. And also series fans will be pleased to learn that a major career change looms for Stone in his next outing. Mm. So for those who aren't Uh-oh. happy with 41 books, we're already looking ahead to 42. <laughs> At number 10, we have The Stars Are Fire by Anita Shreve. This is uh, more of a literary novel uh, about a young housewife and mother just after World War II who is stuck in a loveless marriage and resigned to a future of childcare and housework. Uh, but after a summer-long drought uh, where she lives in coastal Maine, a massive fire breaks out and uh, can lead to some unexpected changes and opportunities. We say that there are some flaws in the characterization. Uh, her husband's cruelty seems disproportionate, and the novel's final pages feel a little implausible. But many readers will be buoyed by Grace's strength and resourcefulness and will be eager to debate the ethical decisions she makes as she seizes her independence. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, worth noting at number 21 is Fallout by Sarah Paretsky. This is the 19th book featuring V.I. Warshawski, uh, Chicago P.I., um, very well-known, very popular series. And uh, we say that this installment is intriguing, if flawed, and uh, that Paretsky kind of loses the thread midway as Warshawski becomes entangled in small-town politics, including her town's history as a spot for anti-nuke protests in mm-hmm. the 1980s. So slightly, wow. slightly bogged down there, but uh, we say that sharply drawn characters partly compensate for a plot that's fascinating when it stays on track, but it too often meanders. And that's uh, what's happening on the hardcover fiction list. All right. Well, I've got quite a few on nonfiction. I'm just going to jump right in and go through it. Starting at number three, Elizabeth Warren, U.S. Senator from Massachusetts. This fight is our fight, the battle to save America's middle class. That's at uh, number three. Uh, That's been a long-awaited book, and people are jumping to it. Uh, Next, we have Connor Franta, uh, Note to Self. Connor's the author of uh, what was the New York Times bestselling memoir, Work in in Progress. Yeah. And this one, she, um, two years after her journey from small town Midwestern to uh, internet uh, sensation, she kind of turns it to a different side of her. And um, so that's at number four. At number five, David Grant, uh, New Yorker writer, uh, Killers of the Flower 
Moon, the Osage, Osage murders and the birth of the FBI. We reviewed his, but this is a star review. And uh, we reviewed his book, The Lost City of Z, which is just now coming out or soon to come out as a movie. This one has already gotten a movie contract. And this talks about the uh, spree of murders in Oklahoma during the 1920s, uh, where at least two dozen people were murdered by killer or killers, apparently targeting members of the uh, of the Osage Indian Nation. And uh, we say, Grant's own dogged detective work reveals another layer to the case that Hoover's men had never exposed. Number six, black privilege. Opportunity comes to those who create it by Charlemagne Tagad, the self-proclaimed prince of pissing people off and the co-host of uh, Power 105's uh, The Breakfast Club. He calls himself, or they call him, the uh, hip-hop Howard Stern. And uh, this is his comic and often, I guess, controversial insights on how living an authentic life is the quickest path to success. I don't have a review of that. Number seven, Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign by Jonathan Allen. And uh, at number eight, The American Spirit, Who We Are and What We Stand For by David McCullough. And then we have at number 12, Jen Sincero, you are a badass at making money, master the mindset of wealth. So we've been seeing a few of these uh, Mm. self-improvement and financial improvement books coming out. Finally, at number 14, The Phenomenon Pressure, The Yips, and The Pitch That Changed My Life, Rich Ankiel. He's the um, pitcher from the St. Louis Cardinals. So that's at number 14. And that's what we have. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Kim Phillips-Fine revisits New York's fiscal crisis of the 1970s and what it can teach us today. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jodie Foster, the author of The Schmuck in My Office, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Kim Phillips-Fine on the line. Her new book is Fear City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics. Hello, Kim. So glad you could join us. So glad to be here. So you you talk about the fiscal crisis of the 1970s in New York. And Mm -hmm. so set up for us, what was going on in New York at this time? So let me actually just pull back a little bit to understand where we are in the 70s in New York. It's useful to know a bit about New York over the whole post-war period. Great. New York in the post-war years was um, in many ways the, the, had a uh, system of had a much more extensive city government than almost any metropolis in the United States. Many of the ideas of the what we sometimes think of today as the liberal era that followed World War II, involving strong labor unions and a more expansive welfare state. These ideas were pushed farther in New York than elsewhere. Um, there were a the, the New York City had free higher education. It had an extensive system of public hospitals and health clinics. This, in addition to public amenities such as its mass transit system, um, which far exceeded those in most other cities at the time. So the city had a very robust tradition of social welfare. This had fallen, however, by the early 70s, this was coming into crisis. And the public hospitals were no longer running as smoothly. The city was seeing increasing unemployment. People were leaving New York for the suburbs. The the white middle class was moving out of the city. The manufacturing base that had previously powered New York was eroding. Companies were leaving for both the suburbs and also for the southern United States and even overseas. So the city was entering into a period of uh, social and economic crisis. What's more, these were not the, the, the kind of social contract that had existed in the city during the post-war years was under pressure from both above and below. Um, on the one hand, companies and even the New York Stock Exchange were 
concerned about the tax burden that they were bearing to pay for the public sector in New York. Um, and they, they felt increasingly constrained and concerned about what this meant, both for their bottom line and also in a deeper sense for their ability to uh, have an ear in city government. At the same time, the civil rights movement and the um, the kind of mobilizations of poor people that were taking place around the country and in New York in particular were creating pressure from below in New York for um, a more a kind of a more, a more expansive um, social state and for the city to. Uh, more generously fund programs, especially in non-white neighborhoods and communities. So the the social state was being, um, pressure was coming from both above and below uh, as we enter into the 1970s. So how did um, people in government react? And you mentioned um, very explicitly Wall Street wanting to have an ear in government um, and and linking that to their profits, which sounds to me like they wanted to profit enough to bribe the officials. So what what was happening in government at the time? Well, actually, it's, it's fun. The, the stock exchange actually threatened briefly to move out of New York altogether, to either move to Connecticut or even my favorite was a suggestion to move to the city of Eureka in California. Um, so it would be odd <laughs> wow. to imagine the New York Stock Exchange going all the way there. However, the, the city government, uh, the, the, the leaders of the city government were uns- uncertain what to do. And what they ultimately wound up doing was um, as they, their revenues were 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 squeezed, they wound up borrowing heavily uh, to try to fund the social programs that people expected, and the result was that they ran up a tremendous amount of short-term debt, which, well, which is, was really the heart of what, what brought them into the fiscal crisis. So at some point, uh, New York really was on the verge of bankruptcy. How did that happen, uh, and how did the government deal with it? Well, in the spring of 1975, the banks that had previously been underwriting and marketing New York's debt to the national investment community uh, said they would no longer do so. And at that point, the city was really, really depended upon that money in order to operate in a day-to-day way. And for the rest of 1975, New York essentially teetered on the edge of bankruptcy. It was able to cobbled together one solution after another, uh, but it, it was kind of the, the, the future of the city, the financial future of the city was in doubt really until the end of 1975. Probably the very closest the city came to bankruptcy was in October of 1975 when um, the, the United Federation of Teachers, the teachers union for the city, its pension fund had committed to buy $150 million worth of the city's debt. Um, and at the last minute, the uh, committee that, that kind of voted on the holdings of the pension fund said that it w- wasn't actually going to do this after all. And you can see why they might be anxious about doing it. The city was sure. almost bankrupt. Could you really entrust the financial future of the city's teaching workforce? Um, could, could you really put it into these bonds that nobody else in the country wanted to buy? So I think there were, you know, there were kind of legitimate reasons for uh, the the teachers union to be concerned about doing this. There were also a range of political reasons, but um, but even just on the face of it, there were, you know, there were real reasons to be concerned. And the at this point, the city, you know, the city was absolutely was requiring about um, you know, it was depending on that money in order to uh, repay debt that was coming due the very next day. So, you know, the next morning dawned, note holders lined up at the city's municipal building waiting to get their, their, um, their paid back or to redeem their, their notes. Um, they were told they had to come back later in the day. There were kind of meetings and discussions, and it, was, became, it became clear that if the city actually defaulted on this debt, the teachers' union would be blamed for it. So at 2 in the afternoon, Al Shanker, the president of the teachers' union, came forward and said that the, you know, the committee had changed its mind. It would purchase the bonds after all, and the city would not actually default that day. So that was, really, that was the, the very closest, where it was really just down to the wire a matter of hours. And if things had gone differently, the city would have been 
in default and um, you know might have had to enter into legal bankruptcy proceedings. But really, all through 1975, there was this sense of uncertainty, anxiety. Many people, both in the city and the federal government, believed that bankruptcy was more or less inevitable. Wow, the, um, as I read a lot of science fiction. That sounds like a great premise for an alternate <laughs> history novel. You know, what, yeah. what if New York had gone bankrupt? What, what would right. have, what would have happened? Well, it's really interesting. You know, one of the things that created a lot of people at the time were wondering that too. And I think one thing that created so much uncertainty was that nobody actually really knew what would happen. There actually was no law. The state of municipal bankruptcy law was, uh, it had never been called upon to execute a bankruptcy on the size or scope of New York's, uh, a city like New York, where there were, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, many, many, many creditors. Nobody even really had a complete list of everybody who owned New York City debt. The law stated that in order for a city to go bankrupt, half of its creditors had to agree to whatever proposal would come afterward. This was just not feasible in the case of New York. As someone said at the time, you would need to you know, hold a meeting of creditors in Shea Stadium. Um, and it, you know, it, it, was just, it just wasn't feasible. So nobody even really knew how would things work if the city went bankrupt. But people tried to make plans. There were discussions about how city workers might have to be paid in script instead of in cash. Um, there was fear about the potential for uh, you know, riots or uprisings if people didn't, weren't able to get um, uh, – if city workers weren't able to get paid. There were kind of discussions about how perhaps the National Guard would need to be called out. So there was a lot of hypothesizing about what, what would this mean for New York to go bankrupt. But I think the, the biggest issue is actually really symbolic. Um, there was a sense of surreality about it. How could New York, the largest city in the United States, the home of Wall Street, how could it actually declare bankruptcy? This is also, of course, the time of the Cold War. There was anxiety about how this would appear. This is right after the defeat of the United States in Vietnam. Um, how would this look to the Soviet Union and to the rest of the world for a city of this kind of scope and symbolic weight to, to go bankrupt? So, so much of this hinged on reputation, the city's reputation, right. and you said, and the teachers' union's reputation that they didn't <laughs> want to be blamed. Um, right. These really very nebulous factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there were also many, you know, more concrete worries. Would if the city went bankrupt, what would that mean for? Uh, what would that mean for New York State's bonds? Would would they also be called into question? Could the bankruptcy of the city trigger the bankruptcy of the state? What would happen to the whole municipal bond market? Would cities and states across the country suddenly find themselves unable to borrow and in a similar predicament to New York's? What effect would this have on the national economy? Um, you know, which was struggling with recession at the time. So I, I think, you know, there were a lot of material worries, too. But in a way, I think the, the largest ones, uh, and, and I think, you know, throughout the whole year, of the, of the, throughout all of 1975, an atmosphere of fear, uncertainty, and um, a sense that the, the norms that people were accustomed to were suddenly up for grabs and changing. This, this made people, you know, kind of take actions and, and do things that would otherwise have seemed inconceivable. So uh, you, you talk about uh, unlikely groups coming to the rescue, like the Municipal Assistance right. Corporation, and, and you also mentioned some, I guess, like altruistic investment bankers. <laughs> well, I, I think um, – so So you mentioned the, the Municipal Assistance Corporation, and I think earlier you had asked, how did the government respond? Right. Well, the key way that the city and the state um, – and really this, this came more from New York State than the city – the key thing that they tried to do to uh, deal with, cope with the fiscal crisis was – there was a strong sense that the city had to be forced to dramatically cut its spending and to do so in ways that would highlight to the financial community that the city understood that it could no longer do business as it had. The city would have to uh, close 
its hospitals. It would have to lay off thousands of municipal workers. It would have to start to charge tuition at the city university. And the, the, the specific mechanisms by which this new set of norms was enforced came through groups like it came through basically creating state agencies that would both be empowered to borrow money on the city's behalf and also were granted oversight um, over its finances and its budget and a kind of veto on uh, it, the city's spending plans to try to make sure that it would go back to so that, it would, that it would actually enact this set of dramatic budget cuts. And yes, there is also and so so those agencies came into existence and uh, the. Um, there were some banks that were that kind of agreed to buy the debt issued by one of these agencies, Municipal Assistance Corporation, which helped the city kind of refinance its debts, kind of trade in its short-term debt that was you know, due very soon with high interest rates for debt due farther in the future at lower interest rates. Um, and also, I think the, the city's labor unions, I, I know I mentioned the, the teachers union before, but the city's labor unions actually played really an even more important role in purchasing this, this debt, which uh, enabled the city to kind of get out of its immediate fiscal straits. Um, and I think the unions really don't always get the, the credit that they deserve, but they were absolutely essential in you know, kind of uh, buying this debt and making, kind of keeping the city from actually going bankrupt. So for someone who's in New York City today, the idea of a weak city government being saved by strong financially independent unions is almost <laughs> incomprehensible. So how did we get from there to where we are now? Right. I actually would I would mention just one last thing about the, oh, sure. the uh, which is the the, the the federal government actually also you know famously Gerald Ford um, was initially very resistant to giving any federal aid to New York and uh, you know for Gerald Ford was you know no one had ever elected him president he was Nixon's vice president um, and had actually only become Nixon's vice president after Spiro Agnew was uh, you know had to resign his office so no one had ever elected Ford. President Ford was very, you know, concerned in 1975 and 1976 about whether he would be able to win an election, which he wanted to very badly. He was being challenged from the right by Ronald Reagan. And when New York came asking for money, he was absolutely determined to not, uh, not extend federal aid to the city which I think is what um, people in New York initially thought would happen, that Ford would never let the city go bankrupt. Mm. Again, for these reasons of reputation that we mentioned earlier. But for most of the year, Ford was adamant that he would not actually help the city. Um, and especially, there, there were discussions behind the scenes where there was maybe a little bit more give, but in his public pronouncements, he was quite clear. And that's what generates the famous headline, Ford to City Drop Dead, which appears in the Daily News after one of Ford speeches where he said flat out that he would veto any congressional uh, proposal to give federal aid to New York. Well, one month after giving that speech, Ford reversed himself, said the city had done enough. It had made clear enough that it was committed to a program of budget cuts. The state and its agencies and the state had also stepped in with different kinds of aid. And he, he at that point, agreed to federal aid for the city. And I just mentioned that because both the unions and the banks whatever assistance they whatever gave was was really contingent on the federal aid. And so I just think it's important to highlight that the, uh, you know, kind of the role that Ford and the federal government played in um, creating the crisis overall. Hmm. So just, just to mention that and that story. So the question, how do we get here uh, from there? Well, one of the outcomes of the, the fiscal crisis was the sense, and I think you see this actually in the way people talk about the crisis even today, the sense that the city government and to some extent you know, government in general uh, can't or shouldn't try to do too much, that what really matters is the private sector and crafting government in a way that responds to and um, you know, is is designed to support the uh, the the 
the you know, corporations, business, the economic elite, and that if you do that, you will then eventually see, you know, you'll, you'll generate revenues that can be used to pay for social programs, and that will, you know, kind of be the road back to, to fiscal health. And in some ways, that's really what the city tried to do after the fiscal crisis. Um, this is when you start to see the city uh, in, a, in a pretty concerted way um, extend subsidies and uh, different kinds of tax breaks to companies that agree to locate or remain in New York. You see developers being able to um, get a range of tax breaks in return for, uh, you know, that help promote the the development of um, luxury housing and other types of construction in the city. And in a range of ways, you kind of see the city government subtly shift itself towards the private sector. This is, I don't know if we can talk about um, Donald Trump in a minute or two, but he really comes out, he, you know, his own uh, economic success derives from this moment. So I, I think, you know, there's a lot of ways in which New York became the city it is today, but I think part of it has to do with the reorientation in city priorities that follows the fiscal crisis and the... Um, you know the, the 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 sense of the 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 more limited role that government in general should play has to play, um, and that this is, has has you know there there are many things that have kind of fed into the current inequality of the city, but that's definitely one of them. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Kim Phillips-Fine, author of Fear City. So what led you to decide to write about this particular turning point in New York City's history? Well, I think it was really two things. One is I was really fascinated just by the strangeness of this story. How could how could it be that New York could almost go bankrupt? I think that the the spectacle of this was really fascinating to me, and I wanted to understand you know, how this could be and what it would feel like to live in a city that was in crisis in this way. And, you know, since I started working on the book, which was in the fall of 2008, you know, we have seen cities like Detroit actually declare bankruptcy. But I, I think that that question, what you know, more, more broadly, too, what happens to a community when it loses uh, these when you when you have these kinds of budget cuts enacted, what do, what do people owe to each other? Can we expect to have a um, you know? Can we expect uh, the kind of a the the state to make sure that higher education is available to all? Can we expect that we will have you know decent high quality public schools? These are the kinds of questions that I think the story of the fiscal crisis raises for me. And that's really what I wanted to explore in in working on the book. But I think I was drawn to it partly simply because of the drama of the story. So uh, we say in our review of your book, which uh, was a star, that uh, your book uh, is paced like a thriller. How how did you come up with the narrative structure? You know, I think, although I'm not sure I entirely intended this, but I, I think that the, in some ways, this book bears a certain resemblance to some of the books that are about the um, the financial crisis of 2008 and the subsequent recession, like, um, you know, like Too Big to Fail, or I, I, I don't, I'm not, sh- I, I don't think, I, I wasn't actually reading those when I started working on the book, but I think in a way that experience of living through that fall and the sense of... Uh, uncertainty and fear and um, of of drama that there is and we're in a in a fiscal or financial crisis things are always turning out to be different from how you thought they were initially 
And so there's a way in which the reality is kind of steadily you know, revealed to be worse than what you thought it was at first. And I think that quality or that, that story uh, kind of runs through the book. So, uh, you know, what did uh, what? How did this compare with the fiscal, you know, fiscal crises and stock market crashes of nineteen eighty seven and the two thousand seven two thousand eight? I mean, what what didn't we learn? From yeah, this? well, it's interesting. I mean, it's not really the same story because those were, um, you know, those those had to do with the. the the uh, different kinds of financial instruments, but I think what is similar is something of the the um, just the dynamic in which uh, you know the the different the, the the strong interest that many different actors have in um, hiding the truth of the problems of the situation. So you know the rating agencies, for example, in 1975. Um, you know, there was one small rating agency that was willing to downgrade New York City's debt. The rest of them, or Moody's and S&P, the kind of the, the, the major ones, are... Um, are are you know they 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 promote the cities that right up until the moment where it becomes untenable to do so any longer in April 1975. There's no sense that they're you know you, you couldn't look at them and see that there was a problem. The banks are the same. There's in the, you know, they're behind the scenes. There's mounting anxiety, but to the public, you know they, they continue to market the debt. They continue to underwrite it. And they, they, they are, you know, they're unwilling to say there is a real problem. And the city government, too, is not, um, you know, there's a, even as it becomes clearer and clearer that its financial structure is untenable, there's no, um, you know, public account for this until it just becomes impossible to hide it anymore. And so I think in that way, the way that all the different social actors are kind of invested in uh, papering over the problems. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, this is also a story that's partly about kind of hubris and power and the ability of uh, the desire of very powerful people to, um, to, to, you know, kind of make it appear as though their vision of the world is actually how it is and that kind of what happens when that suddenly is revealed not to be the case. So um, the subtitle of your book is about the rise of austerity politics, yeah. and um, that's definitely been one approach to fiscal crises. For example, Britain really took mm -hmm. a very strong austerity approach to dealing with the crisis in 2007, 2008, um, whereas the... American federal government under Obama uh, had a very different approach and really tried as much as possible to avoid that kind of severe cutting back. So how mm -hmm. how how have these um, you know over the the last I guess forty years now how have perspectives shifted on the value of austerity politics and right. whether it's mm -hmm. really a good useful response to a crisis. Right. Well, I think another you know, you, the 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 narrative of the book just uh, maybe a, a roundabout way to think about that question. But I should say that, that the the first half of the book is telling the story of the fiscal crisis and kind of where it came from, what its origins were, and then really looking at the drama and suspense of that year. And I, I thought it was important to do that because to understand why it had such an effect, you really needed to get into the um, the mindset of the people who lived through it and the sense of of fear that it engendered. And that's part of why it was so powerful. But the last part of the book is about the um, the budget cuts that were enacted in the city, uh, a kind of very sharp, sudden contraction of the city government, and then the way that people responded to this. Because another narrative about the crisis in the city is that there was a kind of common spirit of equanimity. People really, people understood that times were bad and they might not be able to have all the, um, you know, to have the, the services they'd been expecting and accustomed to. But that actually really wasn't the case. There was a substantial amount of protest in the city um, against the cutbacks. People 
um, you know, for example, occupying and sleeping in libraries that were threatened with closure, having near daily daily protests to try to keep public schools open, um, protesting some of the CUNY campuses were uh, supposed to be merged into each other so that some of them wouldn't exist any longer. There, too, there were occupations, there were protests. Um, there was one... Uh, you know, the city ran a lot of drug treatment programs. At one point, several hundred recovering drug addicts camped out on the lawn of Gracie Mansion um, in protest of the, the cuts to, their, to the programs that they were that they were using. Uh, I tell the story in the book of the People's Firehouse, a fire station in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, which um, a group of neighborhood activists occupied and slept in for 16 months trying to keep it open. So there was a really vigorous, intense response against austerity in the city. Um, and this is similar, I think, to what you see in, you know, what we have seen in Greece, for example, over the past um, past decade or so of, of crisis there. We've seen these kinds of protests to some extent in Puerto Rico. Um so I think you 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 know there is a this these uh, you know austerity programs tend to be heavily contested from below. Rarely will you find people who really agree that the public services that they depend on are you know easily expendable and should simply be um, be eliminated. So anyway, that's a kind of long, that doesn't quite get to your question about the Obama administration and the response, um, you know, to the recession uh, of um, 2008, 2009, um, which I can speak to as well. But just to give a sense of the kind of the contests over austerity politics. Well, we only have a couple minutes, and this is this is all really fascinating. But I just just curious, you know, that you were saying that uh, this book you started in 2008? Mm-hmm. And what are, what are you working on now? <laughs> I, I, I did just finish this, so <laughs> I, we're not I, trying to rush you. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> I am not quite sure what I'm going to work on next, but I think probably something about um, I am interested in writing about the 1980s, and I think one of the you know the some people have asked me what are the you know kind of what are the lessons you can take from the fiscal crisis and while i do think there are some kind of policy lessons i think this is not a, this book is not a policy brief and it's not a um it's not a polemic i think that the that i've been really interested in the the uh, kind of connections, the ways that this history evokes things in the present. Uh, I think we're living now through another time when political norms seem to be rapidly changing. And when, again, some of these basic questions of what what can we expect from each other uh, in a society? What is the nature of community? These questions are now kind of being um you know, kind of, I think in a way they're, they're, they're coming to, to front and center again, as they did during the fiscal crisis years. So I, I think it, um, I, I'm interested in this, the, the shift at the, in, in the 70s and into the 80s, the, the kind of end of the New Deal order and the, um, the trauma and, uh, the, and, and social pain that went with that and, the ways in which we are still living today with some of the unresolved tensions from that time. So I don't know exactly what I'll do next, but I, I, it will probably have something to do with um, the Reagan years and the, the uh, struggles over the idea of the country at that time. Well, it sounds great. Going from the 70s to the 80s sounds like a great project. <laughs> Hopefully so. We've been talking with Kim Phillips Fine. You can find her book, Fierce City, in stores right now. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PWVP of Business Development, Carl Pritzkat, talks about PubTech Connect Conference, so stay tuned. Hi, this is Holly Tucker, author of City of Light, City of Poison, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW VP of Business Development, Carl Pritzkat, is here to tell us all about the PubTech Connect conference. Hi, Carl. Hi. So this conference just happened this week. Huge success. A blast was had by everyone. Tell us about it. Tell us about the conference and how you came up with this. Well, we uh, were approached by our friends at NYU's School for Professional Studies Center for Publishing and its director, Andrea Chambers, about a year ago. And they um, had the idea that we had been talking with them actually for a couple of years about doing a conference about the intersection of publishing and tech, mm. trying to you know not just talk about sort of uh, mundane nuts and bolts issues, but more strategic things about how innovation and, and a lot of the things that the tech industry has uh, brought to our world um, and, and somehow exposing that to the publishing industry so that publishing can benefit from that and grow from that. So uh, that's what we did. Great. And that's what it ended up being. And about how many people were there? Like what, what size of an event was this? It was about 200 people. Um, and it took place at this stunning space at NYU uh, in their Kimmel Center, which overlooks Washington Square and all of Manhattan. So it was a great place to be for eight hours. Um, but the programming was what really made it shine. Um, really great speakers and all sorts of aha moments um, throughout the day. Well, tell us a little bit about the uh, the speakers you had and maybe an aha moment or two. Well, th- we had two big keynotes. One was a conversation with Sri Srinivasan. Uh, I have never get his last name correct. He's the chief digital officer of the city of New York. And he spoke with Kinsey Wilson, the New York Times executive vice president of product and technology, and also their editor of innovation and strategy. And they discussed efforts uh, that New York City is making to bring tech's innovations to its citizens uh, with helpful apps, but also with uh, bringing access to underserved communities where a lot of the things that we take for granted Uh, they don't have, which is easy access to the internet and those types of things. But also, Kinsey Wilson talked about how the Times has spent a lot of time over the past five years, ten years, really uh, developing a a robust digital strategy which has paid off for them in the last few months since the Trump election when they've seen a huge surge in subscriptions. So it was fascinating to hear the two of them talk about that. Then in the afternoon, we had another keynote, which was a conversation between Jim Bankoff, the CEO of Vox, uh, and he was in conversation with John Kelly, who's the editor and founder of The Hive from Vanity Fair. And they talked about the innovative ways Vox has grown um, these seven verticals that they have, which are websites, including Curbed, Eater, Recode, The Verge, and Vox, which... They, they don't try to be one big site. They instead have these very focused sites. And this is a strategy that Bankoff had learned when he was at ESPN. And then they applied it um, to, to sort of more broad interest things on the web. So it, it was great to hear about somebody who had built a digital company from the ground up, as opposed to uh, what Wilson and Srinivasan had talked about with coming into these legacy organizations and trying to bring digital innovation there. Um, We also had three amazing panels. One was devoted to innovation, and it had people from Fast Company, Dropbox, Squarespace, Who, What, Where, and ClassPass. And these aren't people that publishing industry folks are used to hearing. So it was was great to hear them talk about how, how they deal with innovation and how they, you know, how they have to manage themselves really on the cutting edge of, of, of what's going on in tech. Then we had a, a panel about new audiences with speakers from Wired, MailChimp, HarperCollins, Vice Media, and Goodreads. Mm-hmm. So there was getting a little closer to some, some familiar faces with publishing. And then the, our last panel of the day was um, about reinventing legacy brands. And we had speakers from The Atlantic, from Cadillac, National Geographic, General Electric, and Forbes. Um, so that was 
fascinating as well, you know, to, to get their take. I think somebody estimated that the combined age of all of those companies on the stage was like 750 years or something. So compared to the first one about innovation, where some of those companies had only been around for, you know, a couple of years, it was, it was sort of wild to hear that a lot of times dealing with the same problems, but, um, but entirely different approaches to, to handling them. So you know, you're talking about so many of these, and with the exception of Harper Collins and maybe a couple of others, none were really publishing or even magazines uh, or or uh, sites. I mean, these are. Uh, I mean, you're talking about uh, ClassPass. You're talking about so many others. What was the takeaway, uh, or maybe one or two for publishers? Like, what what was it that they were able to bring away? Well, um, we were lucky that we did have the involvement of some publishers. We had some hands-on workshops with folks from Hachette and from Penguin Random House um, and I'm forgetting who else, but, but where, we, where we did really talk about, okay, as a publisher, what do you do? How do you innovate in storytelling right. or in marketing or, or in business? But you're right. It was, it was a lot of times, I think for some people, they would sit there and be hearing what was said and be thinking like, okay, how does this apply to me? And then again, you'd see somebody would say something and you just watch it ripple through the room. Right. I think to me, one of the most powerful concepts was that you have to be ready to fail mm-hmm. and that unless you are pushing the envelope in your organization to the point where you're, you're experiencing failures, then you're probably not innovating enough. However, it's very important to have empowered your organization in a way so that failure isn't a bad thing. And instead, you can actually learn more from a failure than you can with sort of a mediocre success. And uh, J.P. Eggers, who's a, a NYU professor, gave a half-hour sort of lecture about how you deal with innovation in uh, an existing organization. And he really broke down into very workable steps the idea that, for instance, he used examples of, of uh, hospitals, are very good at saying, okay, something went wrong, let's all sit down here, and without any egos or without any threat of blame or anything, let's talk about what happened, what are the good things, what are the bad things, how do we learn from that so that next time we do that better. Very few organizations do that. For the most part, we have our sort of our routines that we go through and we kind of shuffle along with them. So you, you want to be able to, first of all, communicate to your organization, hey, here's what our big priorities are. Make sure that everybody in the organization knows that. And then let them know that it's okay to try things that, that aren't going to work sometimes as long as everybody can openly talk about it and learn from it and benefit from it. So, As the parent of a toddler, this all sounds so familiar. <laughs> <laughs> another parent was just saying every kid should have three boo-boos because if you have fewer than that, then you're not trying enough. Right. And you have more than that, then you're taking too many risks. So it sounds like there this, you go. Is, that's this, that's is, this is the three good. boo-boos rule right, um, right. For, for companies is right. you should be trying enough to fail a little but not too much. Exactly. Exactly. Oh that's, wow, that's great. Okay. Well, I'm I'm very glad that they're all finally learning this <laughs> <laughs> this, this very important lesson. So, um, what what were any particular aha moments for you personally? There were some very specific ideas about uh, how you deal with websites. I, I one of the things that uh, Jim Bankoff talked about, which was fascinating, was this idea of creating a sports website. Um, where you don't you don't care so much about uh, the actual score or the details of it, but instead they built fan websites where they'd say, "Hey, this is a Yankees website," mm. and a Yankees website doesn't care about the fact that the Mets are playing across town, and they also don't ca- care about the fact that the Red Sox had you know these same stats. They want to know what it's like right. to be a Yankee, and they want a, a Yankee fan and talk about that. And I thought, of course, in publishing, there's some great. Great things available there. Uh, Jay Loff, who's the from the Atlantic, but is is the the publisher of Courts. Their their online you know, Atlantic Media's online community. He had a great thing just in general, which is that most people are afraid to hire people who are more intelligent than they are, mm. just out of sort of nervousness, and that you really build a great organization when you do hire people mm. who are more intelligent right. than you are. And that was one where everybody in the room sort of got this like, ooh, yeah, <laughs> a hush thing. Um, again, Kinsey Wilson talking about the Times because I think everybody has been watching the Times and, and what's gone on since the Trump election 
and and sort of this this sparring between Trump and the Times, and to hear him talk about sort of some of the fundamentals again that they had put in place, but then now to all of a sudden, wow! It it, it you know it's it it's things that they knew they wanted to have in place, but but now they've become essential parts of the way that they're not only conducting business but also doing great journalism, and and they think really cementing the future of the Times and the Times place in in our culture, you know, as as a voice, and those were really interesting to hear, you know, some of the things that they had gone through, and then then the 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 fruits that they're they're you know enjoying of that now. Another great moment from the woman at Class Pass, where she said they'd had a first year that was very successful, quote unquote, by investment standards and, and startup standards, but they realized they couldn't make any money doing what they had set out to do. And more importantly, that they had their business model was based on betting against their customers. They made more money if their customers didn't go to the health classes that are part of the class pass uh, membership. And they had to basically destroy their business model and risk the company mm. in order to do a better job of achieving the goals that they had. And, you know, the happy ending is that they did that. But it was it was very interesting to, to hear somebody talk about how difficult it was for them. But they had to do it. They, they had set up standards and it wasn't, you know, financial standards, but also uh, user experience and, and brand standards. So that was that was fascinating. And to see them succeed as a result was was, you know. Nice as well. And next year, what do you have? <laughs> so is this a one-off? I can't, this can't be just a one-off. I, I have a feeling you're, you're going to try and do this next year. No, we, we are. We are. Right. I mean, we're, we're, we're optimistically heading out uh, into this to, uh, to, to do it next year. And it will be a challenge. The programming was so fantastic this year. We had great, great people. And uh, Andrea Chambers and her team at NYU worked very hard. We had a fantastic executive producer named Caroline Waxler, who also worked uh, especially hard to to bring in these great speakers. So next year, we'll be in a different place than we were this year in terms of what the industry is facing and those types of things. Um, We'll also next year try to bring in even uh, more diverse voices. Um, That was a a challenge throughout this was to to not sort of go to the same old players and and see the same old people. And so we're trying to do that. So it it really looks like a, a, you know, broad range of what's going on out in our world. But yeah, I think we're, we're, we're very excited and very pleased by the response we got from the members of the audience and, and from the, the people, everybody who was involved in the event. Great. Well, thank you so much, Carl. It's always great to have you on the show, and I appreciate you uh, bringing us this recap. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks, you guys. Thanks. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 